1: You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at PurdueGlobal.edu.
0: I'm Maeve Higgins, and this is Solvable interviews with the world's most innovative thinkers who are working to solve the world's biggest problems. Now, I'm really glad to bring you this interview with the journalist Jacob Weisberg in conversation with David Miliband. David is the president of the International Rescue Committee, the IRC, and the two of them have a timely discussion on how best to serve the world's growing population of displaced people.
2: My solvable is that refugees and displaced people should have poverty rates, inequality rates, lack of opportunity no greater than the rest of the population.
0: Around the world, there are more displaced people than at any time in our history. There are nearly 70 million forcibly displaced people worldwide, and almost 30 million of them have been forced to leave their countries. This global refugee crisis has been on the shoulders of the world's poorest countries, with 84% of refugees staying in developing regions. In a global list of countries that have taken in the most refugees, the only European country to make it into the top 10 is Germany. Last year, here in the US, there was a 40-year low in numbers, with fewer than 23,000 refugees admitted to the country. Actually, as you listen to this conversation, perhaps think about the parallels with what was happening back in the 1930s with what's happening now. Here in the US, Syrians and refugees from several other predominantly Muslim countries are banned. And back then, Jewish refugees fleeing Nazi persecution were rejected. In 1933, as fascism descended on Europe, the Rockefeller Foundation began funding a program to resettle scholars that were fleeing that fascism and ultimately rescued hundreds of scholars and their families. In his work with the IRC, David Miliband oversees the agency's humanitarian relief operations in more than 40 war-affected countries as well as its refugee resettlement programmes in cities across the US. David is actually the son of refugees himself, and you'll hear that this really informs his work. OK, that's enough from me. Let's listen to Jacob and David, and I'll chat to you after.
2: The problem is that refugees and displaced people are being failed by a humanitarian aid system that is out of date and needs significant reform.
1: David, we're here at the offices of the Rockefeller Foundation. I did a little research and discovered that Rockefeller has a lot of history with the IRC. In fact, it was one of the original funders of the work of the Emergency Rescue Committee, the ancestor organization to the IRC, which helped get uh, Jews and other refugees out of
2: Nazi-occupied Europe beginning in the late 1930s. You're right. And I always talk about International Rescue Committee, because IRC is one of those acronyms that gets uh, lost. The International Rescue Committee is a great New York institution in the same way that the Rockefeller Foundation is a great New York institution. I think that we can claim at the International Rescue Committee that if I had to choose between being founded by Einstein and founded by Rockefeller, I'd go for Einstein. <laughs> uh, I'd take Einstein over Rockefeller. Fo- founded by Einstein, funded by Rockefeller. Uh, the, the, double, double double, benefit. And Einstein in, was here as a refugee in the 30s. He was in Princeton when Hitler came to power. He never went back to Germany. And he was consumed by the fate of his, of other intellectuals, of family members, of the Jewish community across Germany and then across occupied Europe. And he wrote these incredibly moving letters eventually to Eleanor Roosevelt, pleading with her to persuade her husband, the president, to allow Jews to come from Europe. Of course, American public opinion, two thirds in 1939, 1940, opposed allowing Jewish refugees into America. And so Einstein, in a out of with this enormous sense of impotence, he uh, brought together some colleagues of his to found the emergency rescue committee, became the international rescue committee, and the first thing they did was send um, a man called Varian Fry, a New York Times journalist, to uh, occupied France, where he established a safe house and forged 2,000 fake passports and helped 2,000 people escape from occupied France. It's an amazing history. I thought I might just show you this list I found in the Rockefeller archive
1: of scholars and uh, intellectuals, writers, who Rockefeller helped to place at American institutions, most heavily at the New School in New York. And you look down that list, and it's a who's who of physics in the 20th century, but it includes Thomas Mann and Claude Lévi-Strauss. And uh, it's just its just interesting that the, the, the story is so
2: powerful. No, it's of, and it's a resonant uh, story today. And the you, you're right, Mark Chagall as well. I mean, it's worth saying for your listeners, the new school, when it was founded, was called the University in Exile. Mm. The new school for social research in New York was called the University in Exile. And it was for exiled uh, German intellectuals. Um, no, it's extraordinary uh, history. And just to make it Personal, a
1: little bit. Your your parents. Your your father was was a refugee scholar, was he not?
2: Well, he wasn't quite a scholar. Karl Polanyi, I've just seen here. Yep. That's uh, amazing. No, not he was. Well, he was sixteen when he was a refugee. My dad, so he wasn't quite a scholar by then. Although he did, um, he, he and his father left Belgium, fled Belgium when the Nazis invaded in nineteen forty, and he was sixteen years old. He uh, became a scholar, if you like it. Technical College in West London, where it's pretty amazing, actually, he learned English. And in a year, a year later, uh, did his matriculation and got into the LSE, the London School of Economics. Mm. And so he was uh, and then he's the, the LSE at that point was in Cambridge. And so he spent a year in Cambridge, then joined the Royal Navy. My mum was a, spent the war in Poland and came to the UK as a refugee in 1940, was allowed to come to the UK in 1946 as a refugee on her own as a, as a 12-year-old. Did you grow up with the consciousness of being the son of refugees? Not really, no. And I think that I knew that my parents were foreign. I knew that the Holocaust had taken large numbers of their family. My, one of my grandfathers uh, was killed. Uh, in a concentration camp um, in, in southwestern Germany in, 19, in January 1945. Um, but So there was a consciousness of that history. And, of course, I was born only 20 years after the end of the Holocaust. Uh, yeah. So um, that was there. But I think like many uh, refugees, my parents wanted to give me, uh, my brother, the security that they never had. And, you know, my dad had grown up knowing communism, fascism, my mother knowing uh, Nazism, living under it. And the, they wanted to give us a more protected livelihood. But I knew that, that there was this sort of background music to my childhood was what we had lost and what others had lost. How have the dimensions of the refugee problem globally
1: changed from what the world dealt with in the aftermath of the Second World War and the
2: Holocaust? I, mean, I think there are three massive changes that People Well, four massive changes actually that people need to understand. One, this is not just a European issue. In in the wake of the Second World War, it was obviously a a European issue, refugee uh, flight. It's now a global issue. Uh, Secondly, and equally significantly, the notion of a refugee was born of the idea that when states fought, civilians suffered and they fled. So it was
1: intrinsically a political idea well, a refu- ha- yeah.
2: it, it was a, it, yes it was int- uh, political but it was also interstate mm. and the point i want to make is today's refugees are not the product of wars between states they're the product of wars within states mm. so syria being an obvious example afghanistan somalia those are not those countries are not fighting their neighbors they are consumed by civil wars so that's the second big change the third uh, big change that i would point to is the duration of displacement has grown exponentially. In other words, if you think about the Second World War, uh, Germany had a huge refugee population coming back after 1945, but they were out of their own country for, I don't want to say only six years, but a limited period of time. Today, the figures are hard to pin down, but for camp-based refugee populations, uh, the average duration of displacement is around 17 years. So you've got much longer displacement. But the, the fourth difference is that in the Second World War period, post-Second World War period, um, refugees generally were housed in camps. Today, the phenomenon of urbanization that you've talked about and I'm sure you're going to cover in, in this series, uh, the, that phenomenon applies to refugees as well. So 60% of the world's refugees today are in urban areas, not in refugee camps.
1: What about climate refugees? Surely there are beginning to be significant numbers of refugees who are affected by climate change, and the expectation has to be that those numbers are going to grow tremendously. Well, it's interesting.
2: I I want to push back against the first part of what you said, Mm. not not the second. The first part, which is, are there climate refugees today? Obviously, climate change is happening. The International Rescue Committee, we see that every day in our work in the Sahel. Um, You could argue that some of the... uh, Challenges, problems, war in Syria has some of its origins in the drought in the northwest of the country that led to a large part of the population being driven to the cities in 2008, nine and 10. But there's the clue. Most people who are directly affected by climate change remain within their own country. So they're not refugees in that sense. They're not people who've left their own country and gone to a neighboring country. They are what we would call, I suppose, climate IDPs, climate internally displaced people. Yeah. And so if you think about Bangladesh, low-lying country in the south, It's likely that at the moment, the direct impact of climate change is for people to move within their own country. There's a a wrinkle to this, though, which is important, which is there's no question that climate stress prompted by climate change, resource stress prompted by climate change, is a multiplier for conflict. It drives conflict. And so indirectly, climate change may be contributing to refugee flow. Just to give you an example, if you think about what's happening in the Lake Chad basin, northeast Nigeria, Chad, uh, Cameroon, Niger, uh, there's a range of factors that explain the large flows of people there, both within countries and between them, Boko Haram but uh, included. But there, there's a, a massive climate-induced problem, a resource stress. So that's a slightly long, I apologize for the longer answer, but Beware just saying there are climate refugees today, but your warning that climate change is going to be a driver of people movement in the future is undoubtedly right. It's an underlying
1: condition. David, I know you have a sense of optimism about this problem, and I wonder what your
2: solvable is around refugees. My solvable is that refugees and displaced people should have uh, poverty rates, inequality rates, uh, lack of opportunity no greater than the rest of the population. Mm. At the moment, if you're a refugee, if you're an internally displaced uh, person, it's the fastest route to extreme poverty. If you look at all the statistics, whether of Syrian refugees who are relatively middle class in Syria, who are now in Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, uh, even those who've come to Germany, if you look at Um, much poorer refugees, for example, Rohingya Muslims who've been driven out of Burma, Myanmar, now in Bangladesh, poverty rates are much higher than international averages, Uh, levels of abuse uh, of women and girls, much higher, early marriage, much higher. Uh, And so what I would like to argue is that it's well within our power to ensure that the poverty, inequality uh, rates, the um, oppression that uh, people feel as refugees and displaced people should be no higher than our performance for the rest of the population. How long do you think it would take us to get there and what do you think it would take for us to get there? Well, let me start with what it would take because the uh, first part of your question how long it will take is is about the politics because mm. the truth is the policy problem is not the biggest one as in Einstein's day the po- the problem is a political one less uh, more than it is a policy problem the, the, really there are there are four uh, parts to this part 1 what's the first thing that a refugee or a displaced person uh, needs when they've left their own country or left their own home they need cash they need they're likely to be in an urban environment rather than in a um, rather than in a camp environment and so they need cash support, either not necessarily literally dollars in their hand, but they need cash support. We know from our own research how much impact this has on their life chances, on the ability of their kids to go to school rather than be out at work, actually including uh, reductions in levels of violence within the home. So the first thing they need is cash. And we know how to deliver it. We know how to deliver it in electronic form, and we know how to deliver it in um, cash form.
1: Cash transfers are an increasingly uh,
2: uh, influential idea in international aid generally. Well, and I even wish in- they were more influential, yeah. Jacob, because it's only – my figures are something like only 6 or 8% of the global humanitarian budget goes in cash at the moment. Um, at, at the International Rescue Committee, we, we're, we're higher. We're probably three times that. But it's not yet – Uh, enough, the default option. We say in every, uh, you know, we've got 13,000 staff members and 15,000 volunteers in 190 field sites in 40 countries. The first thing we ask before we do any programming is why not cash? Yeah. Before food, before anything else, why not cash? Because actually it's got the Evidence-based to show it has the biggest impact people know their own needs better than anyone from the outside That's a great point especially if you give it to women. Yeah, um, heads of women in the household second thing is employment for refugee adults Uh, We know from Uganda, interesting test case, which has the most progressive policy towards empowering and encouraging refugees into work, that if you allow refugees to work, they set up businesses, they become employees. In a study in Kampala in 2014, 90 plus percent of the refugees in the country were off international aid because they were able to work, support themselves, contribute to the local economy. Um, Both cash and employment uh, reduce The tension between refugees and the host population. So there's a secondary uh, benefit. Now, it's important to say you can't just say we want refugees to have a right to work, that's the end of the story. Because the countries that refugees are in are generally poor or lower middle income countries. They are Ethiopia, Uganda, Bangladesh, Jordan, Lebanon, uh, Pakistan. These are countries with their own problems. Uh, These are countries that have got unemployment in Jordan, 26%, I think unemployment rate among its own population. And so the only way to make the employment uh, question solvable for the refugee population, if you say, look, there's a big macroeconomic bargain to be done with refugee hosting states. You're delivering a global Mm -hmm. public good. The International Community, that means the World Bank, which has rewritten its mandate to allow this, the IMF, we're going to really support the macroeconomy of countries that are delivering on this global public good to make it possible for those governments to say to their own people, look, we're not just taking care of the refugees; we're taking care of you as well. Yeah. So, give refugees money, allow them to work. Yeah. What's next? Third, half of refugees and displaced people are children. Mm. Yet, two percent of the global humanitarian budget goes on education, which is obviously strategically, geostrategically stupid as well as morally reprehensible. We're talking about education for kids who are not in the middle of war zones. If it's a funding and organisation challenge to get the right balance of expanding the mainstream schooling system so that kids can go to school um, and uh, expanding community-based education where there aren't facilities. And just so you get a sense of the problem, 50% of refugee kids at primary school age have no education at all. 75% of refugee kids of secondary school age have no education at all. And that is not an unsolvable problem. We know how to deliver education to people. We also know, and I think this is important, it's not just a matter of quantity, shoving kids into doubling the size of classes. We know that kids who've been through trauma need special help to access education. And we've done, We call it healing classrooms. You've got to make sure that you're attending to the right quality of education, the right support, sometimes the right language training. Um, and uh, support. So the third element of the the solvable puzzle, if you like, is to just take education seriously and not pretend, not not succumb to the fiction that we don't need to do education because these refugees are going back home soon. They're not. Less than 3% of the world's refugees went home last year. The fourth um, element is not the most important in numerical terms, but it is important and it's difficult politically. And that is that Countries that are not in the front line of the refugee crisis, countries like the United States where we're meeting, Western European countries, but also uh, advanced countries elsewhere in the world, in the Gulf, in China, Japan, you, you name it. Uh, they've got to be willing to take refugees on a, as resettled refugees. And the UN identifies resettlement. In other words, the planned transfer of refugee from their own um, region to somewhere else in the world that can support them as being right for the most vulnerable, those who are for special medical needs, who are victims of torture. Historically, the US has led on this. Um, we haven't used many numbers, interestingly enough, so far in this conversation, but just so people get a sense of it, there are 28.5 million refugees and asylum seekers in the world today, and there are 40 million internally displaced people. The UN says between 5 and 8% should qualify as the most vulnerable, should be resettled. And that is an area where America historically has taken, the, the average has been 90,000 a year, Interesting if I ask you which president admitted the most refugees you probably know, do you know? Uh, in the ever in American history. Yeah, there's a smile on my face because it's not the obvious it's not the obvious most liberal one. Uh, yeah, is it going to be Herbert Hoover? No, no, it's Ronald Ronald Reagan admitted more 200,000 plus refugees in 81 82, more refugees were admitted by Ronald Reagan, so there's no reason this has to be a quote-unquote left-wing yeah. thing. But he had a very clear view that people who are fleeing persecution Or in the case of Vietnamese refugees, people to whom America owed a debt should be allowed to come to America. I would argue it's an essential part of the policy package, but also the political package that refugee slots are opened up uh, for refugees to come to countries like the US and make a success of their lives. And actually, all the evidence is that they do. But they're net taxpayers. uh, They're not a security risk because they get vetted to the gills before they're allowed in. Uh, They actually. We even did a study. They they pay back their car loans at a higher rate than the American population. (laughs) Uh, The ultimate uh, piece of Americana is to pay back your car loan. It's your second car loan. Well, uh, see, yeah. The the, um, so that's the fourth part of the package. So my argument is, this is a the 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 proposition that refugees need and, and displaced people need be no more. Um, afflicted by poverty and inequality than the rest of the global population is so, Is in enlarged. If you do those four things, yes. you'll get a long way towards achieving the goal that we've set.
1: Now, you're, of course, continuing to draw a distinction between refugees and economic migrants. In uh, many countries in the developed world, uh, that is not so clear a distinction.
2: Why is it important to maintain That's it? That's a great point. I mean, it's it's important to maintain it. In, in crude terms, and then we can come on to the subtleties, in crude terms, there is a difference between the girl who is threatened with kidnap by Boko Haram in northeast Nigeria, the family who are threatened by Shia death squads in Iraq because they've worked, had a relative who worked for the American diplomats or the military. There's a difference between them and someone, people who are fleeing for their lives, and someone who is poor but wants a better life. Uh, there's a difference. I would argue. There's obviously a difference legally in international law because mm. the first group has rights in international law, above all the right not to be sent back, no. um, that the immigrant doesn't have. But I would argue there's also a moral difference. Um, it's not that one is good and the other is bad. It's not. That's not the point I'm making. But the moral responsibility on a state that is receiving a refugee is different from a an asylum claim. Is different from the moral claim on a country that is receiving a would-be. Uh, immigrant in between those two polar opposites uh, there are many shades of gray and you can argue well you know if someone's farm is no longer farmable because of climate change are they forced from their uh, home you know someone who's a, if, if someone's if there's famine in uh, south sudan and they flee Uh, then you can see that there are gray areas because the definition of a refugee, it's worth saying that, is someone who has a well-founded, quote-unquote, a well-founded fear of persecution on grounds of race, sex, politics, uh, ethnicity. That has been interpreted over the last 50 years by the courts to mean someone for whom it's not safe for them to be sent home. One should hold fast to that uh, distinction and that uh, definition Um, for two reasons, one of which is principled and one of which is purely uh, pragmatic. The principled reason is that uh, these are people who are in fear of their lives, and there should be a special quality of support for people who are in fear of their lives. The second pragmatic reason is that the politics of changing international law and getting 193 countries to rewrite international law, A, it would never be achieved, and B, if it was achieved, it would lead to a diminution of rights of refugees, which is neither good for refugees nor for immigrants. So notwithstanding all the gray areas and the difficulties, I think an immigration policy is different from a refugee policy. So we think that refugees can,
1: in the future, suffer from poverty to no greater degree than non-refugees. Yeah. Putting on your hat as a political analyst, you were the foreign minister of the UK, how long will that take? We talked about some of the political obstacles,
2: but being both optimistic and realistic. I mean, the problem is getting worse, not better at the yeah. moment. The gap between needs and provision across the four indices or the four interventions that I've described, that the gap is growing, not uh, diminishing. And I don't want to just be an, a politician and punt back the question to you, but a lot depends on America. Mm. Because America has historically been a leader both in refugee admissions and in humanitarian aid. And it's and losing- now we're talking about shutting the the largest land border, the United States. Exactly. Yeah. And also you're talking about cutting all aid to the northern triangle of countries, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, that are the source of people uh, reaching the yes. uh, border. So there's a double... Hit. It's not beyond the wit of politics in the next twenty years to, to to achieve that goal. We are we are committed globally. Nations have committed themselves to something called the Sustainable Development Goals that promises to eradicate extreme poverty by 2030. And my point is that it's going well. If you're if you're poor in India, you, the mm. trends are in the right direction. But there are more extreme poor in Nigeria today than there are in India. And that's because it's a conflict and fragile state, or parts of it are. The concentration of poverty is going to be increasingly among those affected by uh, conflict. Now, the truth is that there's a fifth element to this, which is what's happening to diplomacy. If the crisis of diplomacy continues, if the U.S. carries on its retreat from diplomacy in Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, if Europe fails to become a major... um, Diplomatic power if Russia re- stays on its revanchist course Then all of the treatment of the symptoms that I've described becomes that much more difficult because we're dealing with more and more people um, but I uh, the optimist in me says that um, fact-based Policy interest based policy as well as values based policy um, still has a majority um, there are st- The rising levels of education mean that people around the world can uh, increasingly have their voice uh, we're meeting on the day when um, President Erdogan's increasingly one man rule in Turkey has been rolled back by mayoral elections in Ankara and in uh, Istanbul. Actually, President Erdogan has been pretty good to the Syrian refugees, so yeah. one, one's got to recognize that. I think it, the biggest challenge we face is that people think we can't solve this problem. That's why it's important for me to do this podcast. The biggest Mountain is not a policy mountain. It's not even the political mountain. It's, it's the thought. Oh my God, it's just so complicated. We'll never be able to sort this out. Actually, if you think about the global population, the numbers that I gave you—twenty-eight and a half million refugees, forty million internally displaced—yes, that's together one in every hundred and ten people on the planet. But it's not that many. The number of—if you take the refugee yeah. resettlement numbers—I mean, we're talking. you know, We're begging America, please go back to ninety thousand refugees a year. No one's going to tell me. I mean, you've got 50 states in America, less than 2,000 refugees per American state. No one's going to tell me that either uh, California, but not even Wyoming, is going to be overwhelmed by 2,000 refugees arriving in it's one. It's nothing. Uh, New, York, yeah. well, New York City could settle a multiple of that. Arguably. Exactly. Uh, there's no reason to to succumb to this tyranny that says the problem's too complex, the problems is uh, impossible. I think you know the Pope says there's a globalization of indifference. I say it's not indifference, but there's actually more global consciousness. And it's not apathy either. It's a sense of agency. And that's what hopefully our work around the world allows people to see that there are we, we call ourselves a solutions based NGO. We're, we're out there. If you look at our social media, it's about solutions, it's not about suffering. And I think that we've got to break this tyranny that says the problem's too complex, the problem's too big. Uh, We can't solve it. This is solvable. And I think listeners would like to know what they can do to help. Can you list five things that individuals can do? I would love your listeners, first, to use their voice to stand up for the principle that people who are fleeing for their lives deserve help. I would love your listeners to volunteer at a local refugee resettlement center. The International Rescue Committee runs 25 offices across the U.S., other agencies need support. I would love your listeners who are employers to give refugees the chance to work. And I would love your listeners to become supporters of the International Rescue Committee by visiting rescue.org, getting the information about the work we do, being armed with the facts about how to make a difference. And of course, Since I've lived in New York for five years, I'm no longer ashamed of saying this. I hope they'll become financial supporters of ours as well. You still have your accent. (laughs) I still have my accent. I still
1: have my patriotic British heart beating. David, thank you for joining us on Solvable, and thank
2: you for the work that you do. Thank you so much, Jacob.
0: Isn't it confronting to hear just how few displaced people the US actually takes in? I loved hearing how the IRC, this organization that Einstein founded, has grown up to be this voice of reason. I mean, who is going to argue with Einstein? And a big takeaway that I got from listening to David was that refugees and displaced people need pretty much the same things the rest of us do. Help to get back on our feet after a loss, work that's paid a fair wage, and education for our children. I really love what he's got to say about cash. Basically, if somebody needs money, give them money. David is like, straight up, you need cash, here is cash. Which, if you've ever been broke, you'll know that's the exactly right thing to do. Solvable is a collaboration between Pushkin Industries and the Rockefeller Foundation, with production by Chalk and Blade. Pushkin's executive producer is Mia LaBelle, engineering by Jason Gambrel and the great folks at GSI Studios. Our theme music was composed by Pascal Wise and special thanks go out to Maggie Taylor, Heather Fain, Julia Barton, Carly Migliori, Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Maeve Higgins. Now go solve it.